0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is a filmmaker, a health and science journalist, and a New York Times bestselling author named Max Lugavere. He's a son who watched his mother make all the right choices in life and still get early onset dementia and other health problems. Decided he's going to go out and hack his mom. So he wrote a book called Genius Foods, and has been a longtime uh, bulletproof uh, follower uh, and friend and Max. Uh, welcome to the show to talk about your new book, The Genius Life. Thanks so much,
2: Dave, for having me. I think the last time I was on was about five years ago when I was up in Vancouver at your lab and uh, we I filmed you, remember for Vice. Yep. <laughs> that was a real that was a blast. So uh, it's great to, it feels like a
1: homecoming in a way to be back yeah it's hard to believe it's been five years, so it's about time to have you back on. Uh, that was episode two twenty nine where we talked about dementia, uh, aerobic, aerobic exercise and and breadhead, uh, which was a documentary you're working on. But you've come back and you spent you know five years uh, doing research and all, looking at areas where we both have a lot of interest, and listeners, I think have heard a lot about this. but you you looked at circadian biology and psychology and dementia and making brains work better, which we both care about, and you put it through the lens of how do we prevent dementia. Uh, so people who've read in my book Headstrong know that I covered some of the topics that you covered in a different way, but you know, you've know you gone deep on psychology and deep on circadian. Uh, so I, I think there's uh, some new findings here and some areas where we disagree, and I'm hoping to find some where we disagree so we can have a spirited debate about uh, how you actually should be eating popcorn to fix Alzheimer's or something—that's your argument, not mine. Uh, anyhow, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be back. I, I think it's you know whenever we
2: you know, you're talking to somebody who's as well versed as you are, it's always great to have disagreements because I think you end up it ends up strengthening the science and you end up coming out ahead because you actually learn something, and that's ultimately what I'm in this for. It's to learn. It's to continue to expand my knowledge base so that I can live a healthier life and and hopefully uh, not have to contend with some of the conditions that my mom developed um, early in her life. So yeah, it's good to be here. And I'm excited to talk to you about my new book, The Genius Life.
1: It's amazing what that enlightened quest for self-preservation can drive us to do. I mean, a lot of the the bulletproof learnings were, hey, I'm tired of being fat and tired and in pain and all that. So you you start to do it. And when you're saying, hey, this happened to my mom, I don't want this, right? So how do I help my mom? And how do I, by doing that, help myself? And that's a a very noble um, and very highly motivating thing that I think a lot of people don't recognize. It's okay to be selfish. Um, Because look, not dying is the number one drive of humans. (laughs) So that's because all life forms have that. Um, that said, we will choose to die if it's to protect our our community or our children uh, or to, to make a self-sacrifice. And that's why we, uh, we really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, award or just honor uh, when someone decides that they're going to do that because they overcame our most basic biological drive. So you and me, we harnessed our, I don't want to die and I don't want to suffer along the way. <laughs> and then we're able to use that to help other people.
2: Yeah, so well said. I mean, I've been very lucky in that I've never uh, dealt with any major medical concerns personally, but my mother, who is the person who I love most in the world, um, when I was in my mid-20s, my mom, who was about 58 at the time, began to show the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia. Now, I, like I think a lot of younger people, thought that dementia was something that happens inevitably as a natural aspect of aging, or it's an old person's disease, or it's genetic. So those three misconceptions that I harbored, I learned very early on, um, were were mistruths. So my mom was not old. She had all of the pigment in her hair. She was a youthful, spirited uh, woman from New York City. And I had no prior family history of any type of neurodegenerative condition in fact dementia when i thought about what dementia meant to me i had seen an adams family movie in the early 90s and dementia was the character that uncle fester um actually had a crush on so that's when i thought about <laughs> dementia at the time that's what that
1: word evoked in my head um that's and, fantastic uh, yeah i, I you forgot all movie? about dementia and uncle fester but yeah i i gotcha <laughs> yeah So, so I was just, I was just completely ignorant
2: of the condition. And when my mom first began to show these symptoms, it caught me and my family completely off guard to the point that we actually didn't believe her at first, that she was actually struggling, um, with her cognition, that her brain was actually, uh, in the middle of, of a, of a crisis and we Mm -hmm. were impervious to it. So, um, I ended up going with my mom to, Uh, major medical institutions. We began the journey in New York City, which is where my mom was living at the time. And to see her mom begin to stutter and slow down, almost as if she had had a brain transplant with somebody 40 to 50 years her senior, I mean, it is the most uh, surreal thing to, to witness. And so at a certain point, I realized that I had to step in and get involved. And I started going with my mom to these doctor's appointments. And we began in New York. And In every doctor's office, what I experienced, I've come to call diagnose and adios. Essentially, a doctor would try to come up with some kind of label that they would apply to the slew of symptoms that my mom was experiencing. But my mom had an atypical presentation of dementia. And so we actually didn't get a diagnosis until we went to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio and it was there for the first time that my mom was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition. And she was prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And that was the line in the sand for me. It was, uh, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever had, had a panic attack. And from that point on, I became dedicated to um, investigating why this would have happened to my mom at such a young age. And what could be done, if anything, to prevent it from happening to myself and others that I care about. And I didn't have a background in medicine. I didn't have a background as an academic scientist. Um, I was a lay person, but I did have a background in journalism. And so I used the tools that I had harnessed working for six years for a a news and information network to begin to look into the medical literature. And although it was tricky at first, I then began to exploit my media credentials to then reach out to researchers and experts all around the world. And so at this point, I've I've had a tremendous amount of exposure to the topic. I've been able to obviously write um, extensively on the topic I wrote. Uh, my first book, The G- uh, Genius Foods, which is now published in eight languages, and my second book, The Genius Life. But even aside from literature aimed at uh, at lay people, I've also been able to publish peer-reviewed literature. I was able to co-author a, a chapter in a textbook, actually, geared towards um, psychologists uh, on how to um, manage people who are at risk for developing cognitive decline and, uh, and dementia. So it's been a really... Um, it's been a painful journey, but at least I've been able to sort of, um, funnel some of the, 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 pain and frustration that I experienced with my mom into something that I feel is meaningful and ultimately able to help others.
1: Do you still get panic attacks?
2: You know, I have not really had, um, a panic attack like the one that I had in that hotel room with my mom. And the best way that I could describe it, cause I had never had one previously. It's sort of like when you have one. It's sort of like that scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan on the beach. Within the first ten minutes of the movie, where all of a sudden all of the noise, all of the dramatic music fades out, and all you hear is this high pitched tone, and you see the guy holding his shoulder, looking for his arm on the beach, mm-hmm. and like you just hear that tone. You don't hear anything else. It's basically like just where's my where's my arm? What have you know? It's like it doesn't even process that the guy has lost his arm, and that's what it feels like. Um, and I haven't I haven't had one since.
1: Uh, thankfully, but that really was the motivating. I mean, that was it for me. It it's one of those things because in your book you talk about psychology of all this stuff and, and all and, and you know there's there's a deep there's a deep seated thing that happens with panic attacks you know where it's, it's pushing you know old automatic buttons in the system and you know the the definition of biohacking um, that's you know now out in the world is you know, change the environment inside and outside. Of your body, so that you have full control of your own biology, and you know part of that control is the psychological control and in, in the genius life, and you talk about psychology of that i 'm sort of wondering what have you learned around the psychological side of your environment and what that does to reduce panic attacks or just anxiety and stress yeah that 's such a good question I mean one of the major topics that I advance
2: in the genius life that I think is really cool, and i haven 't seen it. Uh, really mentioned by other health writers um, and certainly not in other books, but this notion of cross adaptation. And I'll tell you why I think this is so important. So, you know, there are certain stressors that are inevitable. And we all talk about how we should minimize chronic stress and things like that. But there are certain stimuli um, that are just uh, inevitable part of daily life. I mean, think about what we're going through now all collectively with the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Um, Certain things you just can't wish away. And so I think in those instances, what can really help you cope with stress is to become more resilient. So those are the two ways that you can deal with stress. You can either remove the stressful stimuli, or you can become more resilient to that stimuli so that it actually doesn't have the same effect, so that it doesn't actually stress you out. And I think that what I've worked hard to do over the past um, couple of years is to really uh, boost my resilience to stress. And I've done that using a number of different modalities. But The reason that I've really focused on the resilience aspect of things is because my mom had uh, a a chronic degenerative condition and ultimately she passed away about a year and a half ago uh, to another terminal illness. She was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So my life over the past couple of years has been incredibly traumatic and stressful. And um, the only way that I could really deal with that is not to remove the stress because the stress was always there. And I think a lot of people deal with stress. They deal with with sick loved ones. They deal with, uh, financial stress and things like that. What I did was I decided to boost my resilience and that's where cross adaptation comes in. So with modalities like physical exercise, with cold immersion or cryotherapy, or even, uh, heat stress with saunas, for example, um, what you can do is you can boost your resilience to and your acclimation to these physical stressors, which then has a spillover effect. And that spillover effect is called cross adaptation. So, by adapting to the stresses imposed um, with exercise or with heat stress, you actually become more psychologically resilient, which I think is a very powerful and empowering um, idea. And this is one of the reasons why they're doing research now. And I think that they're seeing uh, modalities like cold therapy or heat stress associated with dramatic reductions in symptoms of depression. Now, where, how would those two, you know, th- how, how would you, how would, where would that connection, uh, lie? What would the mechanism there be? And I think that the mechanism is that you're strengthening, you know, your brain, um, and you're fortifying your mental health, uh, while you're fortifying your physical health, which is something that is, uh, it's not super intuitive, but I think very empowering nonetheless.
1: The idea of using heat stress and cold stress, and even uh, hypoxia, lack of oxygen, uh, stress. Um, those are you know things that we do at, at upgrade labs, kind of core biohacking techniques. Uh, and we know that they make your mitochondria work better. Uh, we know that you know they can can make your cells clean themselves out and things like that. What research did you find specifically around the psychology of those things or around what they're doing to those mental states? I mean, are there studies that say depressed people take cold showers, they get better?
2: Yeah. Um, there's a researcher named Charles Raison. Uh, I forget what university he's out of. It's R-A-I-S-O-N. And he's done a number of studies with um, sauna therapy. And he's showing that mm-hmm. just using a sauna uh, can have a, an effect at uh, on, on symptoms of depression that is i believe something like twofold higher uh twofold it's twofold more effective compared to um standard uh standard of care treatment um so pharmaceutical treatment um and the beautiful thing about that is that you know pharmaceutical treatment although it is effective the more severe the uh depression you know these treatments are not without side effects um there have also been a number of case reports coming out showing that uh Cold water swimming, so like winter swimming, um, has powerfully, uh, is powerful as a therapeutic for depression as well. Um, so both of these modalities, I think the science is, 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 you know, the story is just being written and it's continually evolving. Um, but there is a signal in the literature that I think is beginning to emerge where by exposing our bodies to physical stress, sitting in a sauna, cryotherapy, um, that it seems to really fortify mental health and to reduce symptoms of depression. Now, physical exercise, this has been well-documented. So there have been a number of meta-analyses published Mm -hmm. over the past year showing us that whatever your exercise modality of choice is, whether it's aerobic exercise or resistance training, that, uh, they, it all seems to be effective in terms of reducing symptoms of depression, reducing symptoms of, of anxiety for patients with, um, just, you know, run of the mill, uh, you know, um, mood, uh, mood swings, but then also with clinical depression as well. Um, and I think that the same mechanism applies. I mean, exercise, uh, floods your brain with BDNF. It makes your brain more plastic. And we know that, um, neuroplasticity is important for it's a, it's, it's an important means of, you know, helping your brain rewire. And so sometimes, um, boosting BDNF, which is the brain's miracle grow protein, has been suggested as one of the mechanisms by which actually some of these pharmaceutical
1: drugs do work in some in some patients. It's um, Drugs like, yeah. It, it's interesting because uh, most of the psychedelics increase BDNF. You know, lion's mane mushroom is, in some studies, reported to it, I, I couldn't feel any difference from it. And then I found an Australian variety that I've talked about on the show before uh, from LifeCycle that really seems to make a difference. Electrical stimulation over the brain raises BDNF. Uh, So there's all these different things, and all of them seem to help with uh, nerve growth factor and BDNF, um, which is fantastic. In fact, there's a supplement uh, that does four times more BDNF than exercise. But what I've never been able to find... Um. Even from that, the study about that. This is an extract of uh, the fruit around coffee. It's called NeuroMaster. It's one that that uh, um, that I manufacture or the bulletproof manufacturers that I helped to create. the The question, though, is in those studies with those claims, I don't know what kind of exercise they were comparing it to. And when you say exercise, what the hell do you mean? Because does this mean like, hey, you know, I, I'm going to lift heavy today? Uh, Or is this like, you know, I'm going to, you know, go run 500 miles and, you know, uh, and all the things jazzercise. Like, like what does exercise mean in the context of BDNF? Because I I honestly feel like there's a lot of like, kind of like kale. Kale's good for you. Like, actually, no, it's not. Like, maybe a little bit, whatever. But like, what really is exercise in the context of the way you think about it for the genius life? I mean, I have my answer, but I want to know your answer
2: yeah so I'm actually not a fan of doing cardio. Um, I don't really do cardio. I try to be more active in my in my day to day life. so one of the types of physical activity that I talk about in the genius life is non exercise physical activity, which I think is crucially important um, so this is actually not exercise, but this is just you know ranging from chasing your kid or your cat around the house to doing chores. Doing laundry, even typing to some degree, just staying active, like anything other than sitting on the couch and watching curb your enthusiasm reruns um, is going to be good for the brain because just moving, simple, daily, spontaneous movements create micro vacillations in your blood pressure that push fresh blood and nutrients and oxygen up to the brain. So that is like, that should be, that's like the base of the pyramid of physical awesomeness, let's just call it. So these non, non non-exercise physical activities, when it comes to exercise, if you're getting, if you're doing a lot of non-exercise physical activity, then I don't think that you need to do cardio. If you're not training for endurance purposes, um, if you are sedentary all day, um, you know, and there are, there's a significant portion of the population that are, you know, essentially desk jockeys. then I think to give your cardiovascular system a workout once in a while, um, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think that there's probably diminishing returns. And at a certain point, excess cardio can lead to scarring of the cardiac tissue. It can negatively affect your joints. And I personally find that running is compressive on my lower back. So I have low back issues. I don't actually uh, like to run, but I will occasionally do an elliptical. And you know, to be honest, as much as I dislike doing cardio, uh, speaking anecdotally, When I spend an extended period of time being sedentary, which, by the way, we know that being sedentary literally drains blood from your brain, I actually tend to find myself that that I'm I develop headaches when I'm sedentary for an extended period of time. And for me, going to the gym and doing a little bit of cardio, ten to twenty minutes, again, this is an anecdote, um, can actually make my brain feel a lot better. Now where I really put emphasis is, uh, is resistance training. And I might have a bias for resistance training because I just grew up very interested in bodybuilding. It's just something that I, you know, as a, as a teen, I became sort of interested in. Um, but I think that the research really seems to be coming out by the day, validating that resistance training, uh, not only has been underappreciated in the literature, especially where the brain is concerned, but I mean, growing stronger, uh, bigger muscles, one of the best things that you could do for metabolic health to reduce inflammation, to continue to be mobile as you age. Um, and we know that age-related sarcopenia is a real thing. Um, I think having more muscle, more strength on your body, can't, its it really can't be underrated. I mean, if you think about just the mere fact that having more muscle means greater a greater ability to dispose of glucose, um, I think right there makes it worth getting to the gym, you know, just for that reason alone, your body has a very limited capacity to store sugar. Um, in terms of its its ability to store sugar, your body's like a New York City apartment. There's just not a lot of places to cram uh, the glucose that most of us are consuming, um, you know, with every meal. So your liver can store about 100 grams. Your musculature can store, you know, 300 to 400, 450, depending on how big you are, how much muscle you have. Uh, but for your average American who's consuming three hundred grams of carbohydrates every single day, um, I think it's it's important to kind of take note of the fact that like that is where we are able to store sugar, and so to have those banks and then to use the sugar regularly with resistance training or high intensity interval training, um, it's gonna I think be a a reasonable way for most people to kind of make room for the sugar and the glucose and the starch that inevitably is gonna
1: find. Um, its way onto people's plates. All right. So the 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 bulletproof recommendations totally line up, all right? So extensive cardio is just not good for you. Um, there's a couple studies that show extensive cardio may lengthen telomeres, but there's other ways to do it. Uh, superhuman, I wrote about you know a peptide that's fifty bucks you can inject. There's supplements. There's sleep. There's all kinds of things. So un- unnecessary and comes at a great cost. In Game Changers, I talked about 80% of people who start running end up injured in the first year anyway. And there's another law in Game Changers about how chronic pain and injury sucks energy all the time until you deal with it. So it just seems like the ROI is low. If you're saying, I'm going to, quote, get healthy. And there's a little bit of emotion for me in this because when I weighed 300 pounds, I went on a (laughs) low-fat, low-calorie diet uh, and I started exercising an hour and a half a day. And lo and behold, 18 months later, I still weighed 300 pounds. I could max out all the machines at the gym, uh, but my joints were worse, and I'd actually done harm to my health from this. Um, so this idea that I'm going to get healthy, so I'm going to you know, go plant-based, and I'm going to uh, go run all the time, it's actually like slapping yourself in the face. It, it isn't the way that your body responds. Um, so we we fully agree on on that perspective of uh, chronic cardio isn't going to do it. Um, we agree on high-intensity interval training. Uh, we agree on some amount of weight training. Um, what's the right amount of weight training? How many days a week? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's, you know,
2: I definitely have an ear to the ground when it comes to fitness and what the, the research on just fitness, you know, like what we get from some of our our top exercise scientists. And I think it really depends on each person. But the more adapted you are to resistance training, I think the more you can do. Like the higher, you know, the intensity that you can stand. And in fact, the higher intensity you need to continue to grow and to get stronger. So it's this concept of progressive overload. So whether it's volume or intensity, um, you know, I think uh, with increasing fitness, I think you have an increasing work capacity. And you know, I think that's really what you've got to, you've got to build your, your workout routine around that, where you are in terms of your own personal fitness. So for me personally, I've been hitting the weights for a decade at this point, if not more, um, almost two decades. And, uh, and so I feel that I can, you know, go to the gym five, six days a week. And so long as I'm sleeping properly, I'm not consuming alcohol, I'm consuming enough calories, enough protein, I feel like my body is pretty amenable to that level of work, uh, and it allows me to maintain a good body composition—a body composition that I'm um, happy with—and you know, all of my blood work is is you know near optimal for at least uh, what I can remember in recent and you know over the past couple of times I've done blood draws, um, and I it, it allows for this without me having to obsess over um, macros and Calories and things like that now I think if you're first starting out, then you want to build an aerobic base um, and you don't have to do cardio to do that I think you can do that doing resistance training um, you also want to establish uh, muscular control stability and things like that because as you mentioned people who just jump right into these workout routines and especially running they end up hurting themselves within the first year um, so I think it's going to be different for every for every single person um, but Generally, the recommendation from, you know, from at least from the American Academy of Neurology, uh, which recently updated the guidelines because they they determined that exercise can be a powerful disease-modifying treatment for um, mild cognitive impairment, it's about 150 minutes a week. So that's generally the, the sort of, that's the general guideline. Try to get 150 minutes a week of some kind of exercise.
1: All right. Uh, my recommendations there were 20 minutes of movement a day and then twice a week high-intensity interval training is the minimum necessary. So it's less than 150, um, but not that far off because 20 minutes times seven is you know 140 minutes. It's just, is it really exercise if you're going for a walk? Uh, I don't know. No it isn't yeah, however I th- for that 150 number i think it counts it's that idea of movement versus true exercise you know do you have to be on a treadmill going fast or is just a walk okay it seems like a walk's okay
2: well yeah there's there's different like i mean i think that that's where you really ought to do kind of all of the things um because you're working out different energy systems for one so when you're doing high intensity glycolytic um hit training you're working out you know your phosphogen um you know energy system uh which utilizes creatine you're working out your glycolytic pathways um but then the more low and slow movements which i really love like walking as you said you're burning you're oxidizing primarily fat um it's not necessarily a cardio workout it's not resistance training um but you know you're it's great for your cardiovascular system it's great for uh, mobilizing lymph fluid around the body and for pushing blood up to the brain. So that's why I think it's important to the non-physical activity is a crucial. That's like sort of the base of the pyramid. I think resistance training is crucial. High intensity interval training, um, is crucial and you can kind of do them in a way where your resistance training could have a cardio aspect to it. You know, like your heart rate is definitely going to increase, but you know, it depends on your goals. There's actually, there was a great, um, I was listening to a lecture recently by Pavel Tsatsulin, who's like this world-renowned strength coach. And he was saying that, you know, if, you're, if your goals are to put on purely strength, then you can stand to have longer rest periods in between your sets. But that's not necessarily going to give you the cardio uh, workout that you're going to get with a more circuit-like routine. So I think kind of balancing um, all of those teachings for your goals is important. But at the end of the day, ultimately, over the course of the week, you want to get a little bit of cardio. You want to get the resistance training. You want to do some high-intensity interval training. And just generally, you want to be um, sedentary
1: uh, as little as possible. It's time for a tough question, though. It's easy to talk about exercise and all that stuff. Um, are you actively dating someone now? What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. It's time for a tough question, though. It's easy to talk about exercise and all that stuff. Um, Are you actively dating someone now? (laughs) I'm not, actually, but I'm I'm looking. Uh, all right. You just put the word out there. There's only like a half a million of them <laughs> listening right now. I uh, just want to post your phone number. I'm kidding. Um, but, I mean, you are, apparently, I, I've heard from a few women, uh, uh, an, an attractive man, uh, mostly because oh, of the man, tussled hair that you've got there, Max. So, so you've nailed it. But... <laughs> I do find that single guys are like, yeah, five days a week in the gym is good. And this also, I'm guessing, I already know this because we're friends. Um, you don't have kids, don't have kids. Um, I do have a cat that I share with my
2: my little brother, and she's sort of like a she's a fur baby. But Got no, it. I don't, I don't have kids. So, I don't have a girlfriend, so
1: yeah it 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 starts so. so I, I would have had similar answers you know, when I was single or even heck when I was was dating, right? You know it's pretty easy if you have you know two adults and you're like, oh, look, we share a place. I'm gonna go hit the gym. You want to come with me, honey and and like it works. But then all of a sudden, hey, do you want to watch you know our offspring? Well I go to the the gym? And it's like, actually, no, I'm too tired to watch them and I'm too tired to go to the gym. So I find that in phases of life, it goes from this, yeah, five days a week. I see very few people um, who are raising families and have careers who can go to the gym five days a week. I mean, uh, Tim Chang from uh, Mayfield, who I've been friends with for like 25 years now, I think, something like that. Um, he's actually pulled that off, but he's still spending, you know, 90, uh, I think, around 90 minutes a day uh, on that stuff. But he's, you know, general partner at a big VC and somehow he's managed his life. So he has, you know, kids and portfolio companies and enough time. But I mean, I, I work on that. I, I live in the middle of nowhere. I don't work out ninety minutes a day. I don't think it'd even be good for me if I did. I maybe forty five minutes a day if I'm lucky of some biohacking. Uh, what else do you do like on a, on a daily basis? How much time do you spend between all these things? Saunas? Oh, there's you know thirty minutes of your life. Gone. You gotta take a shower. Make that forty five minutes. Some red light therapy. There's another twenty five minutes. Like, so how many hours a day do you really spend on you know being youthful?
2: that I'm so glad that you asked and you're right that I'm pretty privileged that I don't have a ton of personal commitments uh that I can really focus on this but I will say that and this is going to sound a little cliche but you know when they say in an airplane you got to put your mask on first before you you know should offer help to those around you I truly believe having gone through something that um is is as stressful if not more than something that, that anybody will ever experience over the past year uh, that what kept me sane throughout what I experienced with my mom was the fact that I was able to um, and that I forced myself ultimately to take at least a half an hour um, every day to to do some kind of exercise now you don't have to go to the gym to do this you can do bodyweight exercises. I actually, um, just before things got really crazy with the COVID-19 thing, I went and I got some workout equipment for my, for my house and it's not an extensive amount of equipment. All I bought, I bought two kettlebells. Um, and you'd be surprised with what you can do with two,
1: two kettlebells. Did you get the pink ones? I didn't get the pink ones. Oh man. I, I was, I've been looking at some of those pink ones, man. Those are the best ones. Kidding. I, I always, I always laugh. For some reason, if they're five pounds, they're always pink. And it turns out five pound kettlebells are really useful for a lot of exercises, especially if you're using blood flow restriction. Uh, so it, I always just laugh. Some, I just wanted a normal looking one. I didn't want it to look like some sort of you know way overpriced you know zombie face or something. Um, I just wanted a kettlebell and just like a plain old metal one. I guess I'm too you know I'm too plain. All right, so you got a couple of kettlebells. What do you do with them?
2: Yeah, well. Well, I mean, so just to close the loop, you know, there's a lot, like a lot of the pathways that get stimulated when you're sitting in a sauna, for example, also get activated during exercise. So heat shock proteins. So I'm sure you've talked about heat shock proteins. I talk about oh, it yeah. in my book and the fact that they have this ability to act like a buttress against other proteins in your body that may have a tendency to misfold and clump and aggregate and form plaques like amyloid beta or tau, which we, which are the two proteins that kind of characterize um, the pathologies that we see in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease um when you're doing physical exercise high intensity interval training resistance training you're basically and you're and you're and you're elevating your core body temperature you're activating those same proteins so you don't have to do it all i think it's important to take a triage approach and at the very top of that of that hierarchy i would say that um just in terms of the 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 evidence the level of evidence uh physical exercise really should be the one thing um of course prioritizing sleep that is crucially important as well um but everybody generally blocks off uh, a third of their day around to, to sleep every night. Um, and we can go into ways of improving your sleep, uh, which is another topic that I cover in the genius life. But generally, in terms of the things that you can will yourself to do um, every day that are going to have an, uh, uh, you know, uh, an entourage effect, a spillover effect, where it's going to be the tide that lifts all the boats in your harbor. I think that doing physical exercise, committing to a half an hour a day um, is going to really give you the most bang for your buck uh that you can you know that you can wish for and it's going to improve all of the other aspects of your life so it's going to improve what you're able to give to your to your loved ones to your um to your job uh i wouldn't be where i am professionally or personally without um without exercise i do it primarily for my mental health and for that cross-adaptation effect and with the kettlebells what i do is i have a really simple routine so i just have two kettlebells they're not even very heavy they're about 18 pounds each and i'll do a circuit uh, because, of course, I'm working out at home now um, where I'll alternate shoulder presses uh, with some bent over rows, with some push-ups on the using the handles of the kettlebells. Um, and then I'll do some lunges and some squats. I don't actually I'm not like a big kettlebell uh, like enthusiast, so I don't know the appropriate names for all of the different moves. Um, but you can you can get a legitimate full body workout with kettlebells and they don't even have to be that heavy. You just do as many reps as you can.
1: And yeah, they're they're solid, and the the set of stuff you're doing there it, it, that works and it hits all the core muscles. Probably the kettlebell swing, you, you probably know that one. Uh, it, yeah. It's good for your dating life, if nothing else, um, because you know, there's a, <laughs> well, there, I, I'm, seriously, there's a hip thrust there that's probably useful. But you know, you're standing, you swing <laughs> the kettlebell between. But what it does for your your butt and for just your whole back. I, I definitely am a fan of the kettlebell swing just for core stability and strength, uh, as well as some shoulders. And then, you know, the Turkish get up. I don't know how to do that. Actually. I've never, I've never done one.
2: Um, I have low back problems, so yep. it's
1: kind of like you can't swing then. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a little bit sometimes, sometimes I, I'm comfortable swinging, but it's not always predictable. Like my form I think is very good, but sometimes I can't predict and sometimes I'll be doing it with great form and I, there's just a little bit of pain.
1: Um, but uh, but the Turkish get-up looks Check very that. interesting. I haven't tried that yet. Yeah, hit that up on YouTube. I mean, there's all kinds of videos for it. But that that one's I don't do it regularly. But I, I got into it a few years ago, um, just as I was looking at the most efficient, effective kinds of exercise. And By the way, newsflash: it's blood flow restriction, um, <laughs> or electrical stimulation, uh, or using non-gravity based feedback are the ones that give me the most uh, most thing, the most returns on investment. But the Turkish get up, you probably could do with your bad back, but you're basically like starting out on the floor and holding it in a certain position as you get up off the floor. And man, that pushes buttons in the body that nothing else does. So I, I got to say for anyone listening, if you have a kettlebell, you're stuck at home because of the whole virus thing, uh, man, maybe, maybe that's your way to, to do, uh, do what Max is talking about here and get your exercise in.
2: Yeah. Home workouts are, they're, they're important, um, especially these days. And uh you know, the the link between exercise and mental health really can't be um, under, it can't be overstated, um, you know, and when I'm home for an extended period of time, it really is a challenge mentally. And I think this is a lot of people. I think this is actually one of the things, one of the topics that is being uh, under, under covered in terms of the media, what this social distancing, distancing collectively is doing for our mental health. I mean, I have a younger brother who works from home. And he is used to being in isolation and working from home and having all of his relationships and his, his work contacts communicate with him digitally. But for some people who are not used to that, I think it could be a, a, a challenge from a he- mental health standpoint. So anything that we can do to um, to fortify our mental health during this time is crucial.
1: Um, I've been seeing people do uh, like work out together over video conferencing systems uh, which is kind of funny Uh, it's you know okay let's like you know 10 friends together let's all do whatever but it does do something pretty cool and i i did with some of my really close friends we did like a virtual dance party like we would do at new year's eve or at burning man or something and that was actually kind of fun and also ridiculous because we're all like at home by ourselves like you know (laughs) whatever but it, it does something good psychologically i would say uh, so there's something there and having just adequate exercise. I, I can't imagine staying locked in a place for two weeks, sitting on the couch and not moving. Like You're just going to feel like garbage when you're done. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Let's move on to another topic. And this is one that's super near and dear to my heart. Uh, one of the reasons that Bulletproof made collagen a thing is that it's very high in glycine and the amino acid that's there. And in Superhuman, I go into like a ton of detail about how aging cysteine and methionine are. And like one of the reasons that you restrict protein um, at certain times of life is that it's not necessarily all protein, it's protein that has too many of certain amino acids. What did you learn during the course of the genius life about methionine and glycine and ratios? And what are your recommendations there from the book?
2: Yeah. So I mean think, you know, people t- tend not to talk about glycine because it's not technically an essential amino acid. Um, it's conditionally essential though. And research calculations estimate that we need about 15 uh, grams of glycine daily for good health. And glycine makes up one third of collagen protein. And I have no affiliation with any collagen collagen manufacturer, but I'm actually a big fan of collagen um, and I try to get it from bone broth, from collagenous, you know, tissue. I, I try to practice nose to tail animal, uh, consumption. Right, have you ever um, eaten an not, animal
1: nose? Have you ever actually eaten a nose? I've never, <laughs> no, nor have I eaten a tail, but, right. uh, uh, the nose think, <laughs> is pretty tough to get down, man. The little nostrils like that. Cause I actually, I, i run a farm. I get the whole animal <laughs> and I got to say there, you should, you should make that one into sausage. I, I just got to tell you. Okay. Keep going. I was wow. wondering. Most people like, wow, have amazing nose. I'm like, no, I have. And I only did it once. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're I, like, I'm I've, not going never... my mouth right now.
2: <laughs> well, I do think uh, I do. You know, I'm interested in that whole. There's a, a lot. There's this belief that like is like benefits like. So if you eat parts of an animal, um, like, say, cow brain, that it's going to be good for your brain. And it would make sense that cow brain would be full of DHA fat phospholipids and things like that um i don't know so much about nose like how eating nose would benefit
1: your nose but uh it's mostly it's just a collagen cartilage tissue um yeah but i mean the cow exactly. brain thing it it actually is profoundly good for your brain except it has all sorts of weird viruses and prions and things like that so prions yeah yeah uh historically i wouldn't yeah, I I don't eat cow neurological tissue or any animal neurological tissue uh, right now, other than maybe fish or shrimp or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe because of the mammals, you know, like avoid yeah. the mammal
2: mammal yeah. brain. Um, yeah, so I mean, there is a suggestion in the literature. It's been primarily performed in um, in animal studies with rats, but that rats when on high when on methionine enriched diets, they have a shortening of their lifespans. And that shortening seems to be abolished when they add glycine into the mix. Uh, in tandem with that, there have been studies that have shown that mice on normal diets, so not necessarily methionine-enriched diets, but they're able to live significantly longer by 4 to 6%. So it's not a huge amount, but it's something. Um that achieved, you know, it's a, it's a, an amount that achieved significant, uh, statistical significance, uh, when given glycine as well. So it seems that glycine has sort of this, uh, longevity imparting effect. Um, and mechanistically glycine is there to buffer methionine. And, um, when we consume too much methionine, uh, like, you know, the person who, for example, is, you know, take the omnivore who eats only lean chicken breast, right? Like the, the omnivore who is only eating like lean chicken on their salads. And that's the bulk of the meat that they're consuming They're Man, They're screwed up. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that person. And by the way, that's how my mom consumed. My mom was a, uh, was a, you know, she was a reluctant, uh, omnivore. She, she primarily was vegetarian, but she would only eat, um, muscle meat occasionally because it would give her protein. And, um, you know, so that's what you would eat. Generally, it was always lean chicken breast. So what that person is doing is they're maximally raising their needs for glycine while getting very little of it. Your average omnivore consumes about two grams of glycine every day. They synthesize another two grams. But as I mentioned, we might need about 15 grams, um, for good health. So, and the other, the other issue is that an omnivore who's primarily eating muscle meat and not getting adequate glycine, um, and then is able to balance their glycine with, Either a uh, free-form glycine amino acid supplement or collagen protein, um, they're basically achieving what a vegan is able to achieve. So a vegan is actually there are many problems with the vegan diet, and I, I would never uh, endorse it from a health standpoint. Um, but the one thing that a vegan diet probably does have going for it is that it's a fair, it's fairly balanced in terms of methionine
1: and glycine. So if you're well, an omnivore It's low in in both, isn't it, though? Just like minimizing glycine, but where are they getting, or minimizing uh, methionine, but where are they getting glycine as a vegan? You can find small amounts in, I mean, but they're also getting very low methionine. I think it's that they crank their methionine way down, but they're also, I would say, then deficient in glycine, which is why you see so many vegans get injured within a year of going vegan. I mean, one of our family friends, I'm going to go plant-based for my health. I'm like, that ain't going to work. You know, three months later, you know, both knees blown out skiing for the first time in 20 years of skiing. Like, Well, what do you know? You didn't feed your connective tissues, now did you? Right? Like that, that kind of stuff does happen. Uh, and it actually happened to me too when I went vegan. You know, All this crazy joint pain. Uh, and you hear this all the time from vegan athletes. Oh, I spend so much time rolling because I'm in pain. I'm like, yeah, try some glycine, right? i.e. collagen. And that's why uh, for me to restore myself I went heavy on the collagen. I still tell everyone, dude, 20 grams of collagen a day. I mean, we're one of the largest manufacturers of it now uh, because it's such an important thing. It's when people go on the vegan recovery diet uh, after they've caused the damage from that, it's like you got to get some saturated fat to build your cell membranes. You got to get some glycine and just some collagen to rebuild your connective tissues that I think get exhausted from this because your body needs glycine for antidepression, right?
2: Yeah, glycine is also a neurotransmitter. Um, and I, uh, it is, it's also rate. So I have a theory. It's it's also rate limiting in the synthesis of glutathione, which is the body's master antioxidant. Um, so I, I, my hypothesis is that you're also accelerating aging by not getting adequate, uh, glycine and you're also not giving Mm -hmm. your body the proper ingredients that it requires to effectively detox. Um, so a lot of people yes. are spending lots and lots of money on detox teas and things like that. But actually collagen, glycine might be one of the most effective detoxifying uh, foods or supplements that you take, especially if you are an omnivore and you're, you know, consuming maximal methionine without balancing it with glycine.
1: Um, it, in fact, so, uh,
2: yeah, from an anti-aging standpoint.
1: Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that most people have never heard of is something called methylglycine or methylated glycine. And you can get this stuff uh, through, it's called, it's called sarcosine and it's been trialed for depression. It, so it's one of those quasi drugs, it's a natural compound, but you can take it and it lasts in the body way longer than normal glycine does in the brain. So you can prop up your glycine levels using this stuff. Uh, it's fascinating, and if you you dig into the research on it, you just feel realize, wow, glycine is doing something in the brain. Uh, but your book, you're talking more specifically around, hey, methionine is making you, or sorry, yeah, methionine and maybe cysteine are making you old, uh, and glycine is the way to balance that out. Plus, you need it for your brain anyway. Uh, what's the difference in your mind between a glycine amino acid supplement and just taking collagen?
2: That's a good question. I actually do have both. And I was taking free-form glycine uh, prior to bed because there have been a few randomized control trials that show that about 4 to 5 grams of glycine prior to bed can actually boost uh, sleep quality and efficiency. Um, And so I couple that sometimes with magnesium, which has also been shown, uh, about 500 milligrams every day, um, can boost sleep as well. And so I feel like both of those two together is sort of like a sleep-boosting anti-aging uh, super powerful combination. Um, and I would just do the free-form glycine uh, in part because glycine, actually, if you've never had free-form glycine, it's very sweet. It literally has a mouthfeel and tastes almost like sugar. Not quite sugar, but um, I would just do that prior to bed. Uh, and the reason for that is that you need to consume... Uh, in, one tea- in one teaspoon of pure glycine, you're getting, I believe, four grams of... Um, Four grams of glycine, four or five grams of glycine, and you would need to take fifteen grams of um, collagen protein to get that. So it's just a more efficient way of
1: jacking your your glycine. It it is, and in fact, the uh, the original "Hey, take collagen before bed" sleep hack I, I wrote that almost ten years ago, and it's just been echoed across the internet like so much. It's it's pretty crazy. Uh, Bulletproof just came out actually with a specific collagen sleep uh, drink that you put before bed. Uh, and you can take straight glycine as the amino acid. I just feel like the collagen di and tripeptides, these are little tiny bits of uh, pre-digested collagen with enzymes. I think they have other benefits uh, in the body, which is why I still go down the collagen route. But the mechanism of action uh, that's likely there is partially glycine, and it may have something to do with serotonin, according to Steve Folks, who's been on, on the show to talk about it. So there's, there's merit to that. And then magnesium is interesting because... Um, I've also had that in the original sleep hacking posts and everywhere online and all over the place, even the Reader's Digest, like magnesium for relaxing. But I came across this intriguing research about the circadian nature of magnesium. And so I still take magnesium Mm -hmm. before I go to bed. And my numbers are a little higher. I think people need at least a gram of magnesium a day, but you can't take it all at once. But it turns out you have the highest magnesium at noon. So because you use it in your mitochondria to make energy, well, okay, that means i moved at least half and a little bit more than half of my consumption of magnesium to the morning. So I take that when I first wake up, I'm along with all the other stuff I take on an empty stomach and then I take it again at night for sleep. And I found I got much better results by having it twice a day. So I could hit that intraday peak for energy and metabolism and then I could get it again at night for relaxation the way you're talking about. And it's, it's fascinating because, you know, timing on all these things matters and there's almost no research on the circadian nature of when you should take glycine or any other supplement, but we know glycine before bed or collagen before bed, uh, that seems to work.
2: Yeah. And I think from, from a psychological standpoint as well, people like to kind of build their, their supplement regimens around various time points in the day. You know, we like to, we like to ritualize our, our utilization of these tools, So the morning ritual, the pre bed ritual. Um, and that's why I think, uh, it can be very effective actually anchoring our usage of these supplementations to a specific time point so that we don't forget. Um, and we all wake up in our homes, right? We all have access to our kitchens in our homes, uh, in the morning and before we go to bed. So it just makes it, I feel like it makes it easier. Um, from that standpoint, although, you know, I'm sure there are some people out there like you who carry around 45 supplements in their pockets, uh, with them wherever they go um
1: i, I do is, carry 45 to do supplements <laughs> uh at least per meal to get a total of 150 a day but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that uh in, in fact nothing wrong except with that. that it's it's expensive uh and you have to manage all that stuff uh for me the benefits are absolutely worth it but i also have weird goals and weird biology um going back and uh just going back in time having been obese and all that stuff so i'm willing to do it because i don't know how to you know be ceo of bulletproof and write books and do the podcast and uh, actually i should say be chairman of bulletproof i hired a ceo finally um but all all of those things just take so much time and energy if i didn't take my supplements i didn't get my you know focused quality sleep and all the things that are part of managing well we're, we're calling a genius life uh, in this interview but just just managing your biology i don't know how to show up as a dad and do all the other stuff and as a husband i don't don't think I would, I don't think I'd have the biological energy to do it. So I I appreciate you getting the word out uh, in your book about the stuff that, you know, that really, really matters and the stuff that you found that works for you and looking at the research, uh, which is also really important.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the benefit of having written books, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, for me, just speaking personally, I'm not a clinician, so I don't have, the ability to iterate in people's diets and then to see them in six months and to see how my recommendations have fared. But because I have the the benefit of having had some time passed uh, between now between now and my first book, Genius Foods, you know, I can tell you I've gotten thousands of letters from people all around the world telling them that my recommendations have helped them sleep better, they've achieved healthier mm-hmm. body compositions without having to obsess over the scale or ruin their relationship with food. And now in the genius life, I've taken the same approach, but towards all the different areas in people's lifestyles where they're going to be able to make small tweaks that cumulatively are going to add up to big, um, health wins. And I've tested them on myself and, uh, I don't want to, I don't want people to believe that because it works for me, it's going to necessarily work for them. But I've taken an approach that I think is pretty evidence based, um, but, uh, is not necessarily evidence bound. Um, I think that, you know, circadian biology is like, we're just writing the first chapter now of how our biologies interact with light, how they interact with food, how food timing and how light timing can affect our health, uh, at pretty prof in pretty profound ways. And, um, and that being said, even though the story continues to evolve and does so at a, you know, breakneck pace. I don't think that, I think that we have enough data where we don't necessarily have to sit idly on our hands. We can take action today that in accordance with the available evidence is going to help reduce, reduce our risk for some of the kinds of conditions that are really burdening modern society and where our tools, um, from a, from the standpoint of medicine are pretty limited. Um, and so that's where I think it's, uh, it's great to be able to, um, to kind of have a research-based perspective, um, and, and yeah, and to be able to put this information out there for people because, you know, I mean, if you look statistically, people are just not, not well. I mean, we're now on track by the year 2030, one half of the nation are going to be obese. Um, and you know, I mean, you've dealt with problems related to your weight. It's a, it's a, it's very, it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, but I think all it takes for most people is, are a few simple insights and a few simple tips to really turn things around in a, in a, in a
1: powerful way. Well, I, uh, I appreciate writing the book and doing the work and just living the lifestyle uh, because it really does change things. And when you can lead by example, it just adds a level of credibility to work that a lot of people uh, you know, are striving for. So thanks for being on the show again, Max. I look forward to seeing you in person uh, the next time we're allowed to travel.
0: A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.